Welcome to the Shared Experiences in Leadership and Business Podcast, hosted by Dr. Terrence Kamal, where we share and engage with you on our experiences in ethical leadership, governance, and business. Dr. Kamal has led teams in everything from startups and family businesses to national and international multi-million dollar entities. He is passionate about blockchain, artificial intelligence, healthcare, networking, leadership development, and family. In this show, we cover state capture from the perspective of a board member. Hi guys, I'm Terence Kamal. Professionally, I had trained as a medical doctor many years ago, but in the last 18 years, I have also launched multiple startups and companies. And as is the case with startups, some were first actions in learning, as some called failures, and others have been successfully launched into corporations and some have actually been sold on. In terms of my successes with companies, I've been humbled to date of having led strong, effective teams and launched and successfully grown three companies into multi-million rand entities and two into multi-million dollar companies. I have been humbled to serve on multiple private equity boards and currently still serve as a director and in some cases as a chairman of various South African and international entities. I've also served as a member of the Health Professions Council of Serious Injury Tribunals. For more than a decade, I had served as a soldier and then as a military doctor after having completed many of the formal training courses during my 13-year service with them. In 2016, by being called upon and appointed by the then Minister Peters, who was then the Minister of Transport, as a, and my appointment was as a director and member of the Road Accident Fund Board. From my understandings and the engagements with the Minister and her staff of the Department of Transport, my appointment was premised on my long and extensive experience in the medical legal space and my various leadership roles in companies. I'm not exactly sure what they liked but I'm quite convinced that, that some of my, my experience was thought to be able to create value at the board and add diversity to, to the entity itself. As a clear disclosure, I had then res resigned from the company I had been serving as a full-time CEO of when I was appointed to the board of the Road Accident Fund. One of the key reasons of starting this, this podcast is having reached a crossroads of saying, well, I've had great experiences and continue to do so, but should I keep it to myself or should I share these experiences with you as we are doing now so that we can collectively work together to improve the outcomes for business, community and society and as a country as a whole if we work together. I think most of my passion has been in the governance and leadership space in recent years and I'm going to focus on some of those discussions today. So for these first few discussions, it will center on governance and leadership in South Africa, some of my thoughts, experiences and views, and some of the governance and leadership challenges about what is happening, what should be happening, and clearly what shouldn't be happening in the broader context of, of our country. I do think that we are now at a very critical point in this country, and I want to address some of these concerns on the very commonly accepted topic of state capture in South Africa. For those not previously exposed to this, the, the discussion, but I'm sure you have already, 
state capture is a phrase that had been developed to classify uh, metaphorically the capture of the state and realistically the state's resources and opportunities by particular individuals related in what some had believed was a family alone and that they alone were corrupt and were destroying the economy. I agree a lot of their actions and decisions uh, have, have had massive impact to the country. But I would also like to bring a slightly different perspective to you. But the honest answer is state capture is real. It has happened and is still happening and will most likely continue to happen if we don't urgently rise up together to stop what is happening to our precious resources and our country. Just for a brief background, and I know some of you may be thinking at this point, well, Terence can talk about he's worried about state capture and how it affects us. But that, you know, in my mind, and I've had these questions in previous discussions, is does Terence really feel the impact of, of the cost of livings? Does he know the pain of poverty and struggle? Since he now tells us he's led some very successful companies that have turned over large volumes of money. My honest answer is yes. I want you for a moment to picture a blue and white first family home. But in this context, more than 36 odd years ago, it was a two bedroom home made of a wooden iron structure as an outbuilding, not far behind a cafe on the side of a hill as someone's outbuilding. That was our home. That home was home to two families. My immediate family with my parents and I, and my father's eldest brother, and his wife and children. In total, I'm led to believe there were more than 10 people living in a very, very tiny two-bedroomed house. And with the pains of those struggles and poverty, my family gave my brother and I all that we have today. And I think what is most valuable of those is the dedication and passion for right conduct, service for the country and the motherland. Both my brother and I eventually studied through scholarships. And it is those struggles individually and as a family that grew our characters. I pause at this point to tell you quite clearly all of us are far from perfect, including me. But I, along with you, I'm in this journey of trying to make a difference, even in a small way. The reality is, in service of the country, all three men of our household have served in uniform. My brother and I have both served for more than a decade individually in the military, and my father served in the education services in South Africa, and now currently serves as a police colonel. So when I speak of dedication, I've done the time. I've literally been in those trenches in the military, I've slept in the bushes in midwinter at minus six, seven and eight degrees in service of what was necessary to be done for the country. In the current context, I currently serve on the state-owned entity board, the Road Accident Fund, but I'm not sure by the time you hear this if I'll still be on the board because the reality is we serve at the pleasure of the minister and with the changes of ministers and political agendas and perspectives in the country, the discretion is always in the hands of the minister of who he wants to serve and for how long. I am hoping that by the time you hear this, I am still serving on, on the board, but I can tell you in, with all sincerity, I've done the best that I can whilst I was on the board and am on the board and will continue to do so 
whether in this board or any other board or individually to make sure that we do the best that we can in our country. On the discussions of state capture and my experiences that I want to share with you, I want to put this disclaimer up front. Is the experiences I will speak of today and in the future is not from a particular entity that I serve on only, but it is based on experiences of interactions and discussions, engagements, coffee discussions, corridor discussions, formal and informal discussions with colleagues who are on several other state-owned entity boards in management roles in some of those entities and function in the state sector across South Africa. I think this, this disclaimer is critically important so that the focus is on the principles and processes as opposed to specific institutions itself. Some of these discussions that have also taken place in the precincts of parliament, in meeting rooms and hotels, when we travel at the pleasure of the minister or the entity. So the reality is these discussions happen all the time. People are aware of what's going on. Very few actually choose to act. So let's not have the perception, and I want you to be clear, that this is not from one entity. It's from multiple entities. What I will also attempt to do is focus not on the actual transaction itself, because that in some people's mind would be compromising the confidentiality of those particular institutions. Although I do believe that you and any other citizen being precluded from knowing what decisions have been made in boardrooms by board members like me that directly affect you, your family and your budget and economy is something that's completely absurd. I strongly believe you and every citizen should be entitled to know how decisions are reached and how they materially affect you. Let's just put this in, in, in context in this peculiarity. In my specific circumstances, a change in the needs of the road accident funds budget and its operating model can, does, and has resulted in increases in fuel levies payable by all people in the country directly and or indirectly. This is, as you already know, is that increases in the fuel levy directly result in increases in transport costs, food costs, utilities, and effectively take money out of your pockets. That money could have been spent on your kids, your family, your dependents for food, rent and other lifestyle costs. But now getting back on track, my focus of these discussions in the state capture discussions with you is going to be on how the state capture happens. I will also make references to who does the capturing, what processes are followed, not followed, used and abused to actually capture state resources. And then you can make up your mind, as I have, that the capture of the state inside South Africa involves many people, institutions, and organizations with many personal and institutional agendas. In my mind, there is an intricate web of multiple individuals, multiple corporate entities, many professionals, we have found ways to become very, very creative in creating income streams for themselves and the people around them. They try and continue to be successful in creating a sustainable solution for themselves in what I perceive to be very questionable and most likely corrupt and possibly illegal relationships and processes 
which they've put in place to create an abuse of the system for self-enrichment, corporate enrichment, and then suddenly everybody stands back and says, it wasn't me. Yes, this particular grouping of people was spread across South Africa and outside of South Africa, in my mind, are most likely 100% guilty. However, so is everyone else who's sitting back and watching these transactions and do absolutely nothing when they know how these processes unfold. These people could include you, someone you know, other professionals, directors, doctors, lawyers, accountants, academics, and almost anyone who has knowingly turned a blind eye to the looting of our country and the destruction of our fragile economy at this stage. Many of the people in power and those who benefit know that they have the ability and potential to stop, but just simply work selfishly for their own gain and do everything possible to protect their interests and to avoid the exposure of what is actually happening. You would be shocked as we delve into this discussion, both in this discussion and in the days to come, of how it actually happens. For me, there is a moral duty, not just for me, but for every single one of us, including you as a citizen, to make sure that we do what we can and continue be, to be ruled by our conscience, knowing that we have an internal moral compass. We have to individually and collectively function from that conscience with a perspective of knowing that when individuals and we govern institutions together, we must make decisions, particularly in the state arena, that with me, we must be competent in what we're doing and do it with ethics. With the competence, there must also be an underpinning, pure understanding that people need to be courageous when they serve in these roles. Because in a lot of these circumstances that I found myself, colleagues will tell me after decisions are made or prior to the decisions, Terence, I know what is going to or has happened is wrong, but I just can't stand up to the chairman, or I can't stand up to the company that's involved, or I cannot. And they blatantly tell you, I know what is right, but won't do it anyway. These people glaringly see and know their illegalities, the untruths or the partial truths that are given to them by the management. Because if I were to ask detailed questions and management gives you scant detail, and hope that you will just rubber stamp and approve what they purport was valid processes, it just carries on. But the reality is these people in power who serve in institutions in different roles, whether in boards or managements or other institutions, they simply lack the courage to speak up. And in my view, if you don't have the courage, you simply shouldn't be there. Further to that, there needs to be a commitment that not only to comply with the lawful requirements in terms of the various legislation, like the Companies Act, the Public Finance Management Act, the Promotion of Administrative Justice Act, and the Constitution, but there must be a commitment to yourself to govern ethically. The institutions and the shareholders in this country, in the context of South Africa, in my mind, is 55 million people or more. These appointed individuals, my colleagues and your colleagues and your people who are in these posts, need to really commit to do their duties to the best of their abilities and continuously think of an inclusivity of the stakeholders. Stakeholders, and some people commonly misinterpret it, are not only those who are appointed as the shareholders in the positions of the state and state institutions. 
Yes, the public is represented by the minister, who is the shareholder for the government. But that government then represents the shareholding for the citizenship of the country. And in my mind, that directly includes you and your family and your friends. When I and others having, have to focus knowing that every decision that we make and you were to make as a member of a board or a, in a management function, we are overseeing public funds and we need to realize that you need to continually act in the best interest of the people. It should not be about self-enrichment. It should not be about management bonuses. It should not be about ring-fencing uh, funds for, for year-end parties or farewells or things like that. There's also the reality of there's always sometimes the mere act of working within the formalistic constraints of the law. But we, we need to also ensure the decisions are ethical beyond the technical compliance and what the Institute of Directors in the King 4 report has now called comply and explain is very different from the old system of comply or explain. Because some people merely find technical ways of ticking a box without any valid reason, fully well knowing what they're doing is illegal or maliciously compliant. Now, the first thing that I would want to discuss at the outset that really concerns me is the abuse of what is called the combined assurance model. The combined assurance model, in my understanding, to try to put it very simply and without going into too much technical detail, is the collective efforts between the management, the internal auditing functions on one end, the external assurance or auditors to provide external perspectives and assurance, and the audit committees and the board itself. So the different spheres and tiers of oversight and assurance need to make sure that the board can remain a guiding light for the management and the management runs the entity legally and ethically for long-term sustainability or transparency and effective control. Simply put, there needs to be checks and balances between the management, the internal auditor who does the ongoing controls and checks, and the external auditor who performs an annual audit. Challenge with this entire model this entire model in the state particularly is multifold. One example is when you have internal auditors who have become integrally involved in the operations of the companies. And I've personally experienced in some discussions, even outside of boardrooms, in which you were to casually ask a CFO to explain a particular procurement process involving tens, if not hundreds of millions of state funds. And that CFO were to start to flounder and then it is the internal auditor who suddenly gives you a comprehensive, justified view of why even such questionable transactions are valid. And you take a step back and say, but hold on. Firstly, you should not know this much of the intimacy of the transaction. And even if you're meant to do so, you should know ethically what was done is still wrong. Technical compliance is not lawful compliance. It is finding a way to validate what was done. The internal auditor is meant to be an independent person. But when you get to internal auditors justifying such transactions, you've got to ask yourself how. And that completely distresses me, which I'm certain would distress you. And something that's very well known to me that I want you to be fully well aware of is many of these internal auditors, and I can cite particular examples from public domain information. So it's not from a boardroom 
But some of these chief internal audit executives or audit executives in the state can today commonly earn salaries and bonuses more than cabinet ministers and directors generals of national government, even more than members of parliament that sit and make laws and guiding principles for the country. In fact, in 2016, from some public domain annual reports, one chief audit executive in a state-owned entity earned just 40,000 rand less than the state president of South Africa, President Zuma, in 2016. I'll say that again. An internal auditor earned just 40,000 rand or so less than the state president who runs an entire country. Can you imagine a situation when an employee, the internal auditor, earns almost as much as the head of government? Formally and informally outside of boardrooms, I have always questioned how employees of a state institution that reports to a director general and minister as employees can earn multifold more than the minister and even the president. Now, if for a moment you're still reeling from the shock of realizing that the internal auditor earns that much, wait until you read the annual reports of last year and recent years, which noted that many, even the COOs and the CEOs of state-owned entities earn more than double or triple the salaries of the current serving state president. And the regrettable reality is, this is still true even today. Going back to the audit functions, the second concern in terms of the audit functions is that people like you and I have the perception that all auditors are 100% ethical and 100% independent all the time, like they should be. In theory, the challenge of many audit firms, if not a large number of them, is the audit firm's boards themselves are constituted of only the auditors. And they just happen to be the shareholders. Now, for a moment, I just want to make a comment. In terms of governance principles of the institutes of directors and best practices internationally, there should be at least more than half, or at least a fair balance of control of independent directors on boards of companies. That is to make sure that the people making the decisions for the company do not act only with a vested interest as shareholders. The reality is a large number of major corporations in the audit space. Their boards are constituted of the very same auditors who are the largest shareholders of those institutions. That to me leaves a large question. Then you need to also look at how independent are these audit firms when they say they are. Because I'm certain you are aware at this point, but I need to stress the fact that many of the audit firms and the big names that you see flashing on large buildings also do many, many more services than just auditing. They also provide add-on services. Again, the perception is based on a large international brand, there's always going to be ethics and value. But as we've seen in recent times in South Africa, that is quite far from the truth. If one were to look at the various auditing firms and say, well, you could be in the top five, six, seven, ten auditing firms in the country, your brand is intended to, to, to create the authenticity. But a lot of these auditing firms also provide services to assist the internal auditors within the state institutions to then supplement their abilities in what they do, in spite of the internal auditors earning those phenomenal salaries, having 
platoons of people working for them in the departments, they still go ahead and spend state funds to procure outside services to assist them. In my mind, there was always a perception that the auditors will only do the external services, but they do, in reality, provide a lot of services internally. Now, as I've mentioned, a lot of these auditing firms do lots of other things besides actually, well, auditing. Many of them, if not all of them, sell consulting services, and that could range from HR models to finance models to procurement services and HR services and other things that make large volumes of money. But what's become one of the issues, even with KPMG, when it was related to that famous family's companies, is they had provided consulting services and auditing services to the same companies. Now, not mentioning other companies besides KPMG in the public domain, these discussions exist and they happen all the time. So in one, in one particular example, going back to the internal audit, is the internal auditors not only besides their phenomenal income and, and uh, their teams available internally, have a panel. So it's not just one service provider. They have multiple firms on their teams uh, to give peace of mind to people like myself as board members and other board members and people outside like in parliament and people like yourselves that we are continually getting assurance services from outside firms for the internal services. But the reality is many of these firms themselves, as audit firms from outside the state, are flouting, in many cases, the legal processes of procurement. And I'll give you an example that I've discussed with a colleague that I've heard of, is a particular auditing firm within the consulting division owns an IP, for example, an HR organogram system that they purchase the rights from an a international provider. They then go to the state and from a very real case have then gone to the state for more than 10 years to multiple state institutions and said, we will give you advice on how to run your systems and how to manage your staff and processes. And based on the consulting, government says, well, please help us. Then when you get these services, the company says, well, we have a solution. We just happen to be the sole source and sole owners of these solutions also. For a moment, just, just for clarity, I'm sure at this stage you're well aware, when government procures anything more than 500,000 rand, it needs to go on open tender. That's in the law. The, the legislation is clear that it, open tender and transparent processes, even under 500,000 rand, there needs to be a quotation system and appropriate checks and balances. But when these audit firms in the consulting divisions sell these solutions, they run into millions they sell it on what is called a sole source procurement. And in some cases, they do it just conveniently in what Treasury also allows as emergency to procurement. Now, in the national Treasury system, just so, so you can follow me in, this, this, in my thinking, is there's only two key times when you can deviate from the normal procurement process. One, there is only one supplier, i.e. in the context of maybe like a Microsoft. Or the alternative is it's emergency procurement. Now, poor planning for me is not an emergency procurement. That's pure failure to do your job. But a lot of the state institution staff will come to you a few days before the financial year end or a few days before a contract ends and says, well, if we don't get this, operations will stop. The government and people are going to lose. So they flout the system purposely just to make sure they procure, and in this case, from some of these audit firms. Sticking with the, the example of an HR or organogram model, 
if government had put out or these state institutions in, in, in discussion had put out the matter into an open tender into public media, they would have got a few hundred possible models that may be slightly different but could effectively do the job. That would then give the state the best choice of options, a variation in pricing and opportunities to interrogate and then find what would work for them. But when the audit firms that are meant to be doing the internal controls with the internal auditors make sure that they provide sole source solutions, then there's a fundamental problem that the auditors have got their hands too far in the cookie jar in that place. There's no public information when these, these processes happen. It is quite shocking. And when, when the matter goes to National Treasury, so just so you know, when there is a deviation, it has to get approval from the National Treasury for these institutions. But the submissions sent to, these, to the National Treasury in many of these cases are so well, well written. They're done by professionals to motivate how this emergency or sole source situation has found itself. And they then don't tell Treasury, give us a few months to rectify. They want three-year, five-year, ten-year extensions of contracts that are clearly sole source. Again, the onus is not only on the institutions alone, but the audit firms in, in these contexts also create such a perception that if you were to get rid of the model, it would dismantle the organogram, destroy the structure of the company, and the state-owned entity, and sometimes the boards and its board members, feel almost obligated because it creates a perception that moving to a new model would perceivably be more expensive and destabilize the entity when the, when the danger is that the auditing firm itself had offered the solution and sold it themselves. The further challenge with that is the same very auditing firms also provide services to the Auditor General. Now, I just want to take you into, into following me with this. I always thought the Auditor General did everything independently. But the reality is the Auditor General has to outsource a fair amount of services, or insource if I could call it, but they outsource it to external firms to work for them, to do their, their work, and they obviously look over and, and try and make sure the best is done to, to the best possible services for the state. The AG, or the Auditor General, but I'm going to call it shortly the AG as it's co commonly called, it's done on the premise that audit firms and the auditors are meant to be ethical and independent all the time. But what happens when the same audit firm that's appointed does not necessarily always disclose that its staff from the other divisions are also doing work with the internal audits to create the internal controls? And that its same companies are also doing sole source procurements to themselves. Now, you're listening to me and thinking, how is this even possible when the AG knows about it? The reality, he doesn't. Or the office of the AG usually doesn't. Because these audit firms don't always get into the detail of exactly what's going on. Because they say, well, the audit function is separate from consulting. The reality is it's one company. So, most likely, nobody would see what's going on. So, this is where I want to actually pause and express a few thoughts to probably create a bit of clarity while, while we, we discuss this, is what I had perceived and how auditing actually works in my understanding in reality. When I had first started working with auditors many years ago, more than 15 years ago, I had the perception that auditors looked at every transaction to make sure all the transactions in the company and the entity were checked and validated for correctness 
And in terms of process, in terms of pricing, in terms of fair value and making sure correct process were followed. I had actually thought that when you got an audit report, which is called an independent audit report, you have a transparent solution saying that everything has been quality assured. In reality, that's really far from the truth. The auditors don't have to audit every single transaction because in industry today, that is called a forensic audit. When an auditor provides an assurance report or when they provide what they call audited financials of an entity, it is based on a sample. And that is dependent on what the auditor has decided his sample will be. So they would set a benchmark of saying we will sample X number of transactions and, and processes and documents and records. And if all of those check out and they don't cross his set threshold for materiality, then there would be a clean audit or clean findings. But it doesn't mean everything that happens there. Now, you and I both know in the state there's millions or hundreds of millions of transactions. But the auditor will not look at every one of those. They work on their sample. The other catch to this is the auditor will never tell you how big a sample is. He'll also never tell you what was in his sample. He'll merely tell you it is my independent decision on what the sample is, and they won't tell you what it was, but they will work within their sample with the internal auditors and the necessary people to audit what they want. In reality, the auditors... When they get to these institutions, because of the sheer size of the entities, they place a lot of reliance on the entities in the state, on the internal audit teams and the audit committees, and just hope that the internal auditors have been comprehensive in the work that they've done. The external auditors also hope that the audit committees have made sure that they put effective control in place to make sure that the entity is governed properly. But the reality, it gets very, very blurry if the auditing firm that is doing work for the Auditor General from the outside for the state is also doing some direct and indirect work for the internal audit and some consulting services for exactly the same entity. When you ask about that, they come back and tell you, well, it's not us, it's not the auditors, it's a consulting division. But now let's just clarify that for a moment. The consulting and auditing or whatever the function be, all of those functions provided, provide an income for exactly the same entity. So you have this big name in blue, green, yellow, orange, or white. But all of these institutions, whether local or internationally, the consulting division and the audit services income combined provide an income for the staff across the company, as well as the very same auditors who serve as directors and are shareholders in those institutions. So whether the auditors say they have other services or consulting services or provide auditing only, the reality is the auditors are the end beneficiaries of what they sell, even through their consulting divisions. Now, let's consider for a moment when, when you know, it raises an alarm bell in my mind of conflicts of interest. Where do you draw the line if you willingly know that your company is providing services or you should or ought to know that your company is providing services on sole source contracts? And these are not small companies, I assure you. These are the top four, five, or six firms in the country who are doing these sole source contracts. Exactly what they said a famous German software company or two are doing with these allegations of corruption in government. The audit companies are doing exactly the same for some of their services. Not all. So I assure you it's not all. But a large number of these firms are related in these kind of transactions. In my mind... 
This is flouting public regulations like the Public Finance Management Act or the Municipal Finance Management Act, and it is purposely providing consulting services that are geared for them to sell their solutions. You cannot ethically sit back and say it wasn't an audit, so it, 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 it's a separate function. The reality is you know what your services are doing and you ought to know what your businesses are doing as an auditor. Metaphorically, in my mind, you cannot be the referee and the player at the same time in the same entity or within the state state space. Using the World Cup model, you cannot be on the field as a player and the referee. But a large amount of these firms have been doing it, are doing it, but conceal what they're doing behind a veil of saying there is a separation between the consulting and auditing divisions. Even if you've got independent management structures, you as the directors are finally the same auditors and all of the profits are within the same company. If the companies in my mind were to separate it, and, and that is where I believe the model is flawed, auditing itself needs to stand independent. Then you will remain independent permanently. But as long as you got your an ability to get your hand in the cookie jar through other services, it creates a very dangerous precedent. And again, with great respect, some of my best of friends are auditors and accountants, and some of my very close family actually. But it's not all auditors. It is the corporate structure of some of these institutions that create the opportunity for abuse. So even some of these directors of the audit firms may not know, purportedly not know what's going on, but in reality they should know. Because if they provide audits for outside services, they should know exactly where every random cent comes into their entities for their services. Auditors, and using the metaphorical example, when I compare auditors, I think of a judge. It's, it's almost in, in, in like the auditors who provide their, their consulting services. It's like a judge saying, well, I'll work as an advocate also so I can argue matters elsewhere and in other courts, but just not this one. That compromises the fundamental principle of a judge being able to give an independent judgment. The judge cannot be seen in the arena, and at the same time, it would defeat the purpose of him being completely independent. To make sure that happens, that is why the state compensates judges adequately. And in audit firms, they also, in my understanding, adequately compensated as auditors. But there's a shareholding of all the rest of the money that comes through. Now, at this point, we're all aware there's massive discussions in the media in South Africa which says we've got self-regulating bodies, we've got memberships, we've got various certifications that we get and there are some statutory bodies but the reality is we know how long they've been dragging their feet because when the institutions or these bodies are comprised of exactly the same auditors who've done these services and know how the business works it becomes a very very gray area but it's not just in the audit professions it happens in all of the other professions it happens in the healthcare professions it happens in the legal professions it happens in every other major profession when it comes to this space, you've got to ask yourself, how far are you willing to go to let your integrity go? We've seen the examples of the ESCOMs, but we haven't seen the examples of the rest of the kind of entities that I'm about to mention. Some of those entities are, that I want to refer to without mentioning all of their names is the Auditor General has quite clearly in the last month or so removed some firms from doing work for the Auditor General because of the perception of their conflicts of interest and loss of independence. And a large volume of work had been given to KPMG and this other company uh, that was doing auditing work, which was a very large BEE auditing firm. From my understanding, 
a lot of the state entities had links to KPMG and this other entity in, in, in uh, the private space that has now some, some functional problems. I've come through where I've learned and experienced that directors specifically who work in those entities, the auditing firms that used to do work for the Auditor General, also serve on state entity boards. Now just picture that for a moment. Not only are those firms doing consulting services and providing auditing services to the Auditor General for government, their very own directors and shareholders serve on state entity boards. And it's worrying because there are also audit firms who run smaller audit firms or what they call the private uh, BEE consulting firms. But these little firms out of lower areas of Johannesburg and various areas that I've, I directly am aware of, these one-man audit firms or two-man audit firms become the JV or BEE partners of these large corporates who have now been removed from the Auditor General's panels. But they also sit, and I, I'm very well aware of a vice chairman of a particular board who sits on a state entity board, fully well knowing he is also a service provider in the other respect, trying to be independent. In terms of the work being done, we're human at the end of the day. And the reality is, when you do work for the Auditor General and the auditors of the AG's office have long relationships with you, the line does, in my perception, get blurry at some point where if you're going to audit a firm in which your colleague does audits elsewhere for, you're not going to question too much of what he does. You're going to say, but my buddy works there. He's also as competent as me. He tells me he's checked everything. Everything looks good, so I'm going to sample this and move on. And he's given me the assurance that things are done well. That is where the dangerous circumstances have landed us of where we are in South Africa. I've also been perturbed when I start to see practices of board members and directors and even vice chairmen. And in some cases, I'm not sure if there's chairmen who do it, but they have the, the, the sheer audacity. Because when you work for the Auditor General, you have a particular badge that you, do, you wear on your, the lapel area of your coat, on your suit. They walk into board meetings of state institutions wearing paraphernalia of the Auditor General, almost creating the perception that you can't question what I do. I work for the AG. It disgusts me, to say the least, and it's just a personal perspective. But if you do that work, there needs to be a separation of which hat you're wearing in that boardroom. I've also seen the, the other extreme where these particular individuals who do work for those firms that now, well, I don't know whether they still or don't do work for government, they even abuse their access tags to the parliamentary precinct to access parliament because they regularly do work for the Auditor General. So when they go for board meetings for State Institution 1, they just purely help themselves to walk around through the rest of parliament because they happen to work for the AG also. That, again, crosses that line of what are you there for? Are you there for the AG or are you there for the institution? But you very well want to brag to your colleagues, see my badge, I work on the audit committee for parliament because I do work for the AG. To me, it's just, it's absurd. It, it, it crosses too many lines. And when those lines start to get crossed, you start to say, but hold on, when, when, when you sit in boardrooms and you have discussions and question transactions, and I'm not an audit by training, but I'm, I'm far from incompetent in what I do. I actually work very strongly and have trained in forensic uh, accounting and, and work. You look at transactions and you ask these colleagues, but you do work for the AG and you do work for these various institutions. Don't you see these transactions are questionable? And they look at you and say, but don't you trust me? We've looked at it. We chair the audit committee. We know what's going on. 
And he said, but there's a common sense test. Something doesn't look right here. And they said, just leave it to be. We're the auditors. And there again, that sacrificing of independence of mind and fiduciary duties becomes a major, major concern. The reality is the best practices in, in governance from the institutes of directors and internationally is people of diverse backgrounds are brought to boards to create exactly that diversity of perspective and to create healthy debate and engagement, which then can create robust discussions, which can help create long-term sustainable solutions for the institution to make sure they're sustainable, they're transparent and effectively controlled. But in these processes, as I mentioned, it, even with these directors who work for these institutions that do work for the state and sit on the boards, they are glaring things that are unethical, but they find ways to technically comply, which is really, really quite funny. I've had discussions where you almost can see there's already been a pre-caucus discussion between the CFO, the internal auditor, the external auditor in some cases, and the audit committee members who already know what your questions are going to be. They've pre-prepped answers and they actually giggle across it when they know, oh no, we know what you're going to ask. Well then, if you all well know what I'm going to ask or other board members are going to ask, why don't you fix it? Don't find technical ways to explain your deviations and, and not following proper processes in government. Why don't you just play by the law for the right reasons and ethical reasons beyond the legal requirements? Going into this further, I will, in this discussion and others, bring in the detailed exact mechanics of the various types of transactions, the various levels of transactions and the levels of people involved without mentioning them in particular with the institutions, but talking about methodology and process of the reality of what is happening so that we as citizens and normal people of the country can know what's going on. Because I, as a private citizen, had the perception prior to serving in these roles that when an auditor looks at something, they give you peace of mind. The reality is they only sample a piece of what the truth is. That sample is also only based on what is made available. I can tell you in recent discussions in the last 20 to 25 months, well, even the sampling can be very well manipulated because there's a close relationship and reliance on the internal audit function and the audit committees. But when those functions are clearly compromised, then we have a problem. Look at ESCOM, look at other institutions, and then you'll start to realize how these things actually happen. When, when working in state institutions, there's multiple laws that apply, and it, it does happen in the private space also. But when you work with state institutions, there's multiple uh, requirements. But there's a perception that when an auditor looks at something, it's compliant in law. But the sad reality is auditors have some exposure to legal training in doing a module or two or three here and there within their processes, but they're not legal minds. They're not attorneys. They're not advocates. And even if they may have a law degree, they don't have immense technical experience of applying the law that some people do have, having worked with the legislation, where having worked with judgments and see how the courts think. And that is where the problem comes in because they focus on a lot of technical compliance requirements from an audit function, substance over form in sometimes they tell me. There's ethical requirements and legal requirements in terms of how law is interpreted and applied. You've got the Public Finance Management Act, the Municipal Finance Management Act, the preferential procurement policies and the triple B act and their particular documented processes. And there's an insistence sometimes from, from financial minds that they know what the law says. But the reality it probably is not because I've had many, many frustrating and agonizing discussions when I've had discussions with internal auditors, 
audit committee members who just don't understand legislation. And I may not have a legal qualification, but I've got a fair amount of experience in the legal space. And I've had multiple times legal opinions needed to be provided that confirmed, well, Dr. Kamal is right, but we'll find a way to maneuver around the technical requirements, which is extremely frustrating, clearly unethical, and most likely unlawful also. And very recently was a discussion without getting into the transaction, but I had discussions with CFOs and, and, and there's a direct agreement by audit uh, committee chairman uh, in and outside the boardroom in which they say in spite of them knowing a transaction is questionable and it involves people that were mentioned in well-known books against a former president and people that are directly by media and well-known institutions uh, implicated in state capture, they say, well, it, the transaction does look questionable, but there's no law against us working with them anyway. And I'm thinking, have you guys not realized there's a new dawn process? There's a new president and there's a direct action for us to clean up the institutions, not maintain the status quo that you had because you've been reappointed as a board member or reappointed as, as a management person with an uh, automatically renewed contract in, in particular circumstances. But again, the question comes about looking at it ethically and saying, do you want to work with those institutions? The AG has said because of perceptions, you'll not work with particular institutions. I would expect the state entities to do so also. I've many times not agreed with those decisions. But the reality is these transactions happen and are continuing to happen. Simply put, legislation is clear. When you govern public funds, it must be transparent, independent and with accountability. But when you find management starting to cherry pick and without giving you a particular transaction, you find management saying, well, we put it out on quotation and the first guy didn't qualify. The second guy didn't qualify. The third one, he met the criteria, but his price was over the legal limit. So we'll negotiate with him and him alone. And you say, but the legislation doesn't allow you to do that. And the feedback you get is, well, it doesn't say we can't do it either. And well, I, I say they can't, and they. but the reality is the legislation is clear. What is good for one is good for all. And it must remain transparent and independent. So when you start to get your hands in the cookie jar so regularly, there is a clear entitlement sometimes of saying, this is how the status quo will continue. But the fundamental problem is you need the strong auditing profession to remain completely independent outside of the consulting services. And make sure that there's an ethical and moral high ground, knowing what the truth is and what needs to happen. These processes are all concerning in multiple state entities. The reality is what I speak about and what we know in the media are not even at the tip of the iceberg. This runs far deeper than any of you have perceived and I may perceive, but I have inclinations from, from what I've been exposed of how far this goes. In my experience and with the access of the information I've had and the engagements and robust discussions I've had in boardrooms and more importantly outside of boardrooms, what we are seeing in these entities is geared specifically, and I stress this, to move our attention to our old corruption of, the yesterday, of yesterday. The corruption is there. We know it's there. It was bad. It continues to be bad. But we're focusing on those institutions that we already know have corrupt issues. But the largest looting and state capture is happening right now at institutions that get what they call clean audits because those institutions have very simply put in sophisticated state capture processes. 
Now, for a moment, I want you to indulge me because I want to comment on, 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 on another misconception because I had also had the misconception, and I'm sure you may share it with me, is when an external assurance provider gives you a clean audit, there's a perception that there's nothing wrong in that institution. But as I've mentioned earlier, the external assurance provider, in some cases, the AG in, in, with other service providers, they gave you a clean audit on a sample of what they've seen, relying on the effectiveness of the internal audit teams and controls and the effectiveness of the audit committee to oversee that what was done. In the audit, they will clearly say they found no misrepresentations. So it simply means if they chose what they were given from those in, in, in a sample of 100 transactions, they chose to look at 15 and those 15 checked out and they didn't know there was actually another 100 transactions hidden from them, well, then they won't see it because then maybe, and in, that is very much the reality in a lot of these entities, more than 50 to 100 of the other transactions could be unlawful. But there's no sharing of information to the extent that it needs to be to be robust between making sure the auditors look and know all of the transactions and then sample from there. So the fact that an entity for multiple years gets a clean audit doesn't mean there's clean governance. It doesn't mean there's ethical governance because from what I've seen in those kind of institutions, there is a very large possibility, not all, because some are well run, but they are still large state institutions in which the largest organized looting is taking place. Therefore, again, it begs the question, how much reliance can we place on what we've been given by auditors? In my mind, we can trust them as moral standing colleagues, but like every other human being, they are susceptible to influence and guidance. The reality is it gets a blurry line when the Auditor General employs firms who employ other firms who work for them and those people together from the firms and their subcontractors all now walk into boardrooms with the Auditor General's badges uh, brandished on, on, on their clothing, creating the perception that, that they, they are above reproach. Ironically, when the Auditor General started making uh, findings against some of these institutions and, and uh, their organizations that they belong to, they all denied that they ever compromised the integrity. The reality is you knew what was happening in your firm. You were a shareholder in that firm. You were party to the discussions and decisions when your company was sold to compromised people and families. But now suddenly when it hits the fan, you say, but it wasn't me. The reality, it was you. You were part of it. This is where the capture of those colleagues are. In summary, my focus is not on any particular profession. It is not about medicine. It's not about law. It's not about auditing. But it's clearly about people's individual lack of integrity and how they become embroiled in simply greed-motivated focuses. They become selfish in their focus to worry about themselves and their individual families at the price of the country, at the price of you, me, and our children and the future of this country and the economy because they are doing everything they can to loot as much as they can and still make sure that the institutions that they're looting get audit reports which say you have a clean audit. Then they make sure the staff of those institutions are paid phenomenal bonuses. And in rounding that up, I think a parting comment that, that may give you some food for thought. Some of these institutions today in their published annual reports, like I've told you, the internal auditors 
and the COOs and some of the staff earn multifold state president salary. Some of these institutions hand out bonuses for not achieving 100% of their work, a percentage of their work, a percentage of what they are paid massive multi-million rand salaries for, their bonuses for obtaining their clean audits in the last two or three years have clearly or almost surpassed the entire bill for the cabinet of South Africa. I want to say that again. The performance bonuses paid to institutional staff in one state entity, one state entity is more than the entire cabinet salaries for South Africa. So collectively, a one institution and their staff that report to one minister, their bonuses beyond their salaries collectively are more than the salaries of all the ministers and the deputy ministers and the deputy president and the president of the country combined. That is where we are with state capture. And we need your assistance. I need your assistance in continuing to ask the right questions so we can save this country sooner than later to make sure we stop this massive looting, the state capture, which is continuing. But the focus is strategically being placed only with some institutions, whilst the looting continues right under the still waters. It's glaring if you're willing to look close enough. And I pray this has been useful to you. Thank you.